the next week, we have two more babies we're baptizing. The week after that, we have two more families that are joining. And so, as a result, everything is like really, really short. And so it's kind of hard to, to write a, a shorter sermon, even more so than a longer sermon for whatever reason. But um, I was going to show you a couple of pictures. If uh, Let's see if I've got it right there. You can see the chapel. I know that's just a, a great place where so many of you have had so many precious memories and Precious memories are still being made in there, and these are some of the kids that we've got on a Sunday morning. Just really, really neat kids, and God's doing some really cool stuff in so many young lives, and uh, they get together and pray, and it's just really, uh, just a really a special, sweet place. So, with that said, you've got the uh, Name That Movie thing. I know some of you have started to, to fill that out. We're not going to actually go into it, because I think you guys probably know uh, most of the answers. So why don't we look at the first one? Just the facts, ma'am. What is that from? Right. Okay. Elementary, my dear Watson. Sherlock Holmes. Luke, I'm your father. Technically, it's the Empire Strikes Back, but either way, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Snow White. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Play it again, Sam. Beam me up, Scotty. Okay. The truth is that none of those actually appeared in the movie. Let me explain. Just, just the facts, ma'am. This quote was never used in the TV show. Joe Friday, the main character of Dragnet, said, All we want are the facts, ma'am. <laughs> Elementary, my dear Watson, this phrase was never used in the 60 stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle. No way. Came up somehow. Luke, I am your father. Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker, not I am your father. He says, no, I am your father. Not Luke, I am your father. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? The real quote from the movie, from the movie is, magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Casablanca, it was Ingrid Bergsman character who actually said, Play it once, Sam. For old time's sake, play as time goes by. And finally, the real quote from the movie is, Scotty, beam us up. So it's interesting that sometimes we think we kind of know what's going on, but the truth is there's, there's kind of more beneath the surface, more to the story that sometimes we don't gather. But, but the deeper we get, the, the more we can better understand that. And I think the same is true with Scripture and with the Bible. I just have a passion for teaching the Bible because I think it's something that just changes lives, not just here and now, but, but for all eternity. Let me give you another example. Who, who knows who this guy is? Wow, Hoagie Carmichael, well done. Let me take you back to the year 1930. This was composer Hoagie Carmichael, a famous pianist and writer and singer and band leader. He was from Indiana, actually has a law degree from Indiana University, but he left that career path to go into music. In 1930, he, along with another composer, wrote the song, Georgia on My Mind. You guys know the song. It really kind of spent a bunch of time in relative obscurity until the year 1960 when Ray Charles sung the song. He recorded it in 1978. Willie Nelson recorded the song. In 1979, Georgia On My Mind was named the official state song of Georgia. And I love the song. When you listen to it, you just can't help kind of beaming with pride of our home state. I think about the 96 Olympics, how they played that song over and over. 
But the truth is, let me tell you a little bit of background about Georgia on my mind. It wasn't written about the state of Georgia at all. You see, Hoagie Carmichael had a younger sister in Indiana. As his music career led him to New York, he missed his family. He missed his sister, Georgia. So he and his fellow composer, true story, wrote a song to his sister, Georgia on my mind. To his sister, not to the great state in which we live. Probably not really what you thought when you heard the song being played over and over again at Stone Mountain or the, the, the Braves game or, or the 96 Olympics. But I use this, again, as an example for Scripture because the truth is I at times think I have man, this, this firm understanding of what the Scripture is saying. But the truth is very often I don't. But, but, but I think the Bible, I think Scripture is like a gold mine, very appropriate that we're near Dahlonega, uh, that the, the, the more you dig the more value you find. The, the more you dig, the, the more stuff of worth that, that you turn up. And I think it's the same when we talk about studying Scripture. So, with that said, we're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. 2 Corinthians was actually Paul's fourth letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. The second letter and the third letter were lost. So this was the fourth letter. It's only the second one of which we really understand. Paul is addressing many of the issues that the Christians in Corinth were facing. And so this is what he writes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us. Remember that word. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul says that when we become, for lack of a better word, saved or converted, we are what? We are a new creation. Okay, this is not just his viewpoint, this is what we find throughout Scripture, that, that when we say yes to the invitation of Jesus to, to say, come follow me, to, to understand that I am who I say I am, that, that I have died for your sin. Certain old conditions and, and maybe old relationships in our past, yeah, they don't change, okay? We, we do, we say yes to Christ, a new creation we become, according to Paul, but, but the truth is we, we still have the same physical features, we have our same personality, the same genetics, our upbringing, our, our families, maybe even in some cases the old sinful environment with which we, in which we grew up. But, but you see, God, Paul is saying, is adding so many new things to our conversion, this new spiritual life. He's adding the Holy Spirit, the, the strength to forgive, the righteousness to pray before God, as well as new viewpoints or new outlooks. And so Paul talks about this Ministry of reconciliation. What do you think that means? Reconciliation. Change. Change? Yeah, I think so. Bringing together. Pardon me? Yeah, bringing together. Absolutely. The word reconciliation means the restoration of relationship. The restoration of relationship. In fact, in this passage, which consists of only three verses, we see reconciliation or the the root word of that four different times so obviously this is something really important that god sent jesus into the world to pay the price for our sin not just so we would have forgiveness but the scripture says so that we would have righteousness 
God is not just subtracting our sins. He's now making us righteous, which means we're able to be in right relationship with a perfect and a holy God. So God has reconciled us to him. God has kind of fixed that relationship, if you will. Okay, so I think that's something really powerful that we have to remember because once we encounter the grace and the forgiveness of God, we're then called to be a new creation. We see things differently than maybe we have before. Okay, now with that said, I pray that all of us can can allow God to open our eyes to see things differently and and whatever that looks like in your own sphere of influence and in your own life. Uh, But with that said, we're going to jump off to something else. We're going to talk about the new ways in which Christ is at work in our lives and the new ways in which God wants us to see things a little bit differently. Okay? So, oh, sorry. Technology is great except when it doesn't work. This past Sunday, I stood up at past, in uh, Chapel Roswell as the pastor and I, I turned on my iPad and I was ready to deliver the best sermon I've ever written, um, which isn't great, but... I stood up there and I, I hit play or, or whatever the button is and, and I looked down and this big error message just blinked and blinked and blinked and it said downloading error. And so I stood up there in front of you know, a couple hundred folks gathered all around me in the round in there and, and I had no idea what I was going to say and I just kind of somehow made it through it. My wife, we had a sick kid at home so my wife stayed at home with them and she goes, Joe, I watched it online, and it looked like you are about to melt down on the stage. What was, what was going on? And so I get back home, and, and my wife's mother, who lives in Marietta and East Cobb, she called, and they were talking, and my wife had her on speakerphone, just because my wife always does that. And, and I'm working on next week's sermon, sitting at the computer in our living room, and, and uh, Catherine's mom, Catherine is my wife, her mom said, yeah, I was going to log on, and I was going to watch Joe's sermon on, uh, on the internet or whatever, and, and Catherine said, no, Mom, I don't think you want to watch this one. It wasn't very good. Um, so wives are often the biggest critics we have, but, but that was, it, was, it was brutal. When you stand up there and you have no notes, you have nothing, and so it was just kind of a crazy thing about how all that worked out. So with that said, let me find where I am now. Reconciliation, have we done that yet? Okay, Barney Fife, have we done that yet? Yeah, okay, we're good. With that in mind, we're going to, like I said, we're going to jump off to something different because the Holy Spirit does a massive overhaul on our lives when we say yes to Christ. And we talk about saying yes to Christ, and we often assume that means when we say yes to the invitation for salvation. That is true. But every single morning, God is giving us the opportunity to say yes to him or to say yes to something else. And that's something I always have to remember every morning. God, am I going to say yes to you, or am I going to say yes to something else? Yes, sir. Did you ever find the sermon you were looking No, I did not. And, and people said, well, you look down like you're reading something. And so I, I, but I was kept tapping it like something, something happened. Yes, sir. We were, we were there. They we were there. See, we did see you, you know, constantly hitting the computer. And I thought, why is going through the pages quick? <laughs> yeah, really. But uh, we thought it was a wonderful sermon. And we thought you did a great job. You well, know, I appreciate we that. Even, You're we lying. We didn't even realize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Really, I mean, it was wonderful. You might as well not prepare. That's right. (laughs) But when you lie like that, it makes baby Jesus cry. (laughs) So, there we go. 
The cross, obviously. The cross is the primary Christian symbol. But the cross actually wasn't used as a symbol for Christians until about the 3rd century. The early Christians were really reluctant to have a cross identifying their faith for a couple reasons. Number one, in many ways they were persecuted and they didn't want people to, they didn't want to stand out, they didn't want people to know who they were. But also they were, they were reluctant to use the cross because the cross represents and depicts a cruel and gruesome method of public execution. Why would we want to use the cross when there are other things that represent maybe more cheerful kind of things about the faith? So, with that said, my iPad is dying again. See, what happens, it's very sensitive to the touch, and because I use my hands a lot, I'll, I'll just kind of mess it up from time to time. So, let's see, this is, okay, that's the end of what I'm going to talk about. Honestly, not very good. We may want to skip that. Um, yeah, let's just wrap up now. Um, yeah, some stuff that might be good. Okay, here we go. I think we're okay. I may have to go back over here where I don't carry it around as much. Okay, but the early Christians, like I said, they didn't really want to use the cross at first. There were certain times, like I said, in history where they were persecuted, in many cases arrested, in some cases even killed. But also, honestly, there were so many other symbols that represented the faith to the early believers. After the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the 4th century, crucifixion was abolished then as a punishment by the Roman Empire, so the cross then kind of made a little bit of a comeback where people would start using the cross. So uh, we go 2,000 years back, the first Christian symbol well before the cross was the anchor. You've got a little anchor there, and that's why it's on your table, because that's something that you can use to remind you of the ways in which maybe God is at work in your lives. The anchor. The anchor spoke of a hope that defies this world. We're called to anchor our lives in something greater and stronger and more eternal than the shifting sands and shifting currents of this world. The fish symbol was obviously used. You've all seen the so-called Jesus fish. But how did this symbol come to represent Jesus? Well, an acrostic is like a, like a poem or a, a word puzzle that uses the first letter to represent something else. It's like an acronym. So the acrostic right here, ictus, the Greek word for fish, you've probably heard this before, is ictus. You can see it up on the screen. The first letter of the Greek word for fish is iota. That's also the first letter of the Greek word for Jesus. So the letters from the Greek word for fish, this is what they spell out. Jesus Christ of God, Son, Savior. That's kind of cool. It's interesting, too, because fish played a, a really an important role in the lives of so many people uh, during Christ's time on earth. There's a Christian historian in the third century, and this is what he wrote. We small fishes, named after our great Ictus, Jesus Christ, are born in water, and only by remaining in water can we live. I think that quote means. Let me read it again. We small fishes named after our great Ictus, Jesus Christ, are born in water, and only by remaining in water can we live. What does that mean, do you think? Remaining in the Word. Remaining in the Word. What does water represent in Scripture, in our theology? 
baptism. I'm, I'm doing two baptisms this week and into the next week. And I'm actually using this quote in Sunday's really, really short message. And it's going to be about what that means, that, that, that the water of Christ represents our salvation, represents God's mercy, represents God's grace. So fish have always had a special place in the Gospels. The, the first disciples, they were fishermen. Jesus' ministry was based on the Sea of Galilee, which was a very important fishing industry. How many of you have ever been to Israel, by the way? Yeah, it's awesome. I would love to go back sometime, but to be on the Sea of Galilee and to see all that goes on there was pretty impressive. Jesus, he called his first disciples by telling these fishermen that I will make you fishers of men. At the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds the masses with what? Yep. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about heaven and hell. Speaking of the way in which a fisherman would separate and sort out his catch. Keeping the good fish, throwing out the small bad fish. So the early Christians, they were persecuted by the Roman government, especially under the leadership of Emperor Nero. He would take Christians out, literally setting them on fire, using them as torches at his lavish garden parties. Thus, Christians would meet secretly, and the fish symbol was used almost as a, a code of sorts, letting Christians know where they could meet. Uh, according to ancient tradition, when a Christian met a stranger, the Christian would sometimes draw half of the fish in the sand. If a stranger came by and he was a Christian, he would draw the remaining part in the sand. There was a man named Tertullian who was one of the early Christian leaders. He was a writer, he was a historian, he was a philosopher, he was a theologian. He became a Christian in about, yeah, let's see what this says, about 200 AD. I was going to say a little bit later than that. But he spoke about the persecution of Christians and he noted how the faith was spreading like wildfire even in the midst of such hostility. Think about that. The Christians were being persecuted, in some cases literally with death, and what happens? The, the faith was spreading like wildfire. What gives? Why is that? Anybody have any idea? Got a couple I'll throw at you, but you guys may have a better one than I do. What do you think? Persecution, yet the faith was spreading. A couple thoughts. Number one, the, the Christians were being persecuted. They primarily started out in the larger cities. Okay, if you're living in a large city and all of a sudden you find yourself being persecuted, what's one thing you can do? You can move. You move out to a rural area. Okay, who lives in the rural areas? People who aren't believers, what are they called? Starts with a P. Pagans. The, the word origin for pagan and it doesn't quite translate exactly, but this is really what it means, okay? And, and just excuse my, my, my language, but, but pagan, literally, the, the, the background of it means, for lack of a better term, redneck, okay? A redneck or a, um, some rural dweller, okay? So the Christians, they would go out to all these people who, who lived in rural areas. They were the ones who were generally the pagans, which is why the word pagan came to be identified with the people who were in the outskirts of town. So the Christians would go into these pagan areas, and they took their faith with them. And eventually the pagans said, man, I like that promise of eternal life, or, or man, I really like the way in which you have hope even when you're being persecuted, or I like the fact that you cling to your faith when you don't have a job or any money. That, that's the kind of faith that I want. 
And then likewise, some of the Christians stayed in the cities. They faced persecution. They faced being a, a social outcast. They lost their jobs. And yet they still clung to their faith. People could identify them as people of faith. And people would look at them and say, man, if that is worth dying for, then by golly, it's got to be worth living for. And so as the Christians were being persecuted, you could see all of these other people looking at them saying, there's something special about that. Last night we ran out of time, but I was going to do a little short presentation on the ways in which the the gospel is being spread all around the, the world some of you in Chapel Roswell Sunday, you know, I talked about this. The fastest growing Christian church in the country is in what in the world is in what country? Iran. Okay, in 1979, the Iranian Revolution kind of ushered in a, a really hardcore Muslim regime. There were about 500 Christians in Iran at that time, and people said, oh man, there's 500 people, these, these Christians are going to be run out, they're going to be killed, and yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of missionaries were killed, a lot of pastors were killed, it was uh, against the law not to have a Bible, certainly to sell a Bible or give a Bible, you just couldn't do that. And yet now, even you guys know the state of the world in, in Iran and what's going on there, the Christian church is booming, okay? In the last 10 years, more people have come to know Christ in, in Iran than have in the last 13 centuries combined. Why is that? Because the people who are the Christians, man, they are living out their faith. They're not just these, you know, kind of the Sunday Christians. I mean, they have to live out their faith because they're being persecuted uh, with the risk of death. And when they stand up in the face of that persecution and live their lives for Christ, people take notice and they stand out in a really powerful way. So that's some of the stuff that's going on. Tertullian in about 200 uh, 200 A.D., when Christians were being persecuted, this is what he said. The more you mow us down, the more numerous we grow. The blood of Christians is our seed. I don't really know what that means necessarily, but he's saying essentially that, you know, you you think you can, can stop the spreading of our faith by persecuting us, but it doesn't work that way. Okay, the more people that die, the, the more people see that, and they're going to know that there's something really in power, something powerful going on in our midst, and people are going to be drawn to the faith. Persecution generally doesn't stamp out the faith. To the contrary, it, it kind of makes the, the what is it, the, the chaff rising to the top, or that expression. I know when you're uh, refining gold, for example, you, you burn off the impurities, and only the, the pure gold stands out. And that's kind of what happened with a lot of the early believers. The, the ones who were these half-hearted Christians, well, they... they got the heck out of Dodge, the ones who stay, they are the the, the true believers, and as a result, they really made an impression on the people there. Okay, so, here's a tough question. Talking about the early symbols of the faith, we've got the anchor, and about 300 AD, we've got the cross. What bird became a symbol for early believers? No. That's true, the dove represented the Holy Spirit, but what bird? Here's the deal. It's on the state seal of Louisiana. Pelican. You see, the female pelicans, they were seen as doting mothers. And if food was scarce, the baby pelicans, they got hungry. They would start striking and pecking at their mama. But after a couple of days of no food, the mama pelican would purposely pierce her own flesh, allowing her blood to spill, providing nourishment for her babies. 
So the pelican thus became a symbol of the sacrificial love of Christ, where blood brings about new life. And that was a common theme in Christian art in the year 1616. William Shakespeare, in his play Hamlet, wrote about this theme. He said, To his good friend, thus wide I'll open my arms, and like the kind life-rendering pelican, repast them with my blood. I have no idea what that means, but it has pelican in it, so I thought that would be worth sharing. Okay, so our scripture this morning is going to take us to the Sea of Galilee, and it's such a long passage that I didn't want to put it on the screen. It would take like a hundred slides, so I printed that out for you. You see that under uh, session three. Okay, it's a long one. We're coming from the book of John. So, this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, before his death, right after he had the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus foretells of his death and his resurrection. His disciples didn't quite get what he was talking about. But in Mark 14, 28, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So, after his resurrection, Jesus had already appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem, but now the scene shifts to Galilee, which is where many of the disciples were from. That's where Jesus sort of headquartered his ministry here on earth. They had been fishermen before they dropped their nets to follow Christ. And so the passage I want to use, like I said, is is fairly long, but here's what it says. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And Jesus said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some fish. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is Jesus, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So, I want to run through this real quickly. We're talking about this nautical theme. We're talking about, obviously, anchors. In verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, the scripture says. It says, uh, it manifested this way. That literally means to, to bring to the light. God is bringing something to the light in this passage. God is, is expressing, revealing something that we're going to find out here. And I think one of the cool things about how God works is this. You've heard the word revelation, obviously. The last book of the Bible is revelation. But a revelation means the unveiling of something, the revealing of something. And I found, I can't speak for you, but in my own life, very often God will do something so miraculous that, boom, it catches you off guard because it's right here now. It's a quick sort of thing. 
But, but most of the time, when I look back on my life, God just kind of reveals something very slowly. Okay? It's kind of like if we went to the curtains over here and we closed the curtains. Okay? God is saying, you know what? I've got something that I want you to experience. Maybe it's a challenge. Maybe it's a blessing. And God just kind of slowly reveals it, slowly unveils it. As you first start to open the slides, maybe or the, the, the curtains, you can kind of look out and say, well, it's kind of a pretty scene. I can't see it all, but it looks kind of nice. And then with a little bit more faith, a little bit more time, a little bit more is revealed. And slowly and slowly and slowly, but, but in God's timing, something amazing is revealed or unveiled. All that to say here, it says that God is bringing something to light. In other words, something really important is about to go on here. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, and this was something really powerful. Okay, so the disciples go fishing. Did they have any luck? Did they catch fish? No, they didn't. Okay, remember, most of them did this for a living. A lot of people are really critical of the disciples because they're saying, wow, how quickly they forget that they, they, they started this ministry with Jesus. Now, Jesus was crucified. He, he came back. He, he was resurrected. Now, he ascended into heaven. And yet, these disciples, they don't have the courage to, to keep going on in their faith and in their ministry. Instead, what do they do? They go back to their old way of living. And people are critical. Sermons have been written about that. But the truth is, what did Jesus tell his disciples? Go back. Okay, why? Because I think Jesus knew that he was going to go and he was going to reveal something really, really powerful. The scripture is telling us that. God is going to reveal something. Jesus was no longer with them. They felt conflicted. They felt confused. They didn't know what to do, so they went back to where they came from. But, but Jesus told them to do that. Okay, And it makes sense that they would go back to doing what they knew how to do, what they were trained to do, what they were raised to do, and that was to fish. So I think they really were being obedient and faithful to what Jesus told them to do. So they were in the boat. They were fishing at night. A lot of fishing is done at night in the Sea of Galilee. Why, why might that be? Really two reasons. Cooler. It's cooler. Okay, three reasons. Cooler. That's right. I like that. They don't see the net. Pardon me? They don't see the net. They don't see the net. Okay, there are four reasons. That they don't see the net. That's true. You guys are smarter than I am. You guys must be awkward people. That's, okay, fish are hungry at night, and sometimes it's better fishing at night. Okay, and then another key reason, more for economics than anything else, when was the time when the fishermen would want to sell their fish? It was in the morning. So a lot of fishing would be done at night simply because that's the only way you could fish, clean the fish, sort the fish, sell the fish. So that what was going on. We think of fishing with uh, like a rod and a reel. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We think of these big nets. That is what Jesus was talking about. They were made of heavy rope kind of woven together. They had attached weights that, that would pull the, the, the nets down deep into the water, trapping all of the fish beneath it. Not kind of a net like we would use today. It was something specific for that day and time. And so they didn't catch any fish. Verse 8 tells us that they were how far out? Yards. Yeah, length of a football field, basically. And so it would be hard for you know, somebody 100 yards away to, to see somebody on the shore and to instantly recognize them. Okay, Again, the disciples, I think, get a bum rap because at first they didn't recognize Jesus, but, but that's really far away. Okay, and it was at night, and so certainly they're not going to be able to see him. But after a while, because of what Jesus tells them, and because of what happens after what Jesus told them, they realize something really amazing is going on. They weren't expecting to see Jesus. 
tell you what, I'm guilty of that a lot. How many times do I go through life not expecting to see Jesus? Wow, it happens a lot, I'll be honest with you. And the disciples, it was kind of the same way. They didn't expect to see Jesus. He was kind of the last thing on their minds at that time. What are, what are the things that you miss out on because you don't expect Jesus to do something amazing? I can't speak for you, but in my life, there are a lot of things that I probably missed out on. A lot of blessings I've probably missed because I'm not expecting to see Jesus and what he wants to do. So, with that said, Jesus was talking to his disciples. Okay, and in verse 6, he tells them to throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you will find fish. When they did, what happens? Man, the, the fish were so, or the nets were so filled with fish that they couldn't pull them in. I mean, that's pretty amazing. They went from catching no fish at all to catching so many that they couldn't even haul in the net. What was the difference? What did Jesus tell them to do? Fish on the other side. Fish on the other side. Okay, we read that. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. I can see why Jesus would tell them to do that. But it's interesting because the disciples, they weren't on a, you know, a modern 21-foot bass boat with a 250-horsepower outboard engine or whatever the right nomenclature might be. But, but let me give you a little bit of a nautical history lesson, okay? Just bear with me. We're going to do this okay. Boats have a left side and a right side. We, we simply know that. What is the left side called? Port. The port side. What about the right side? Port. That's right. Back in the first century, fishing boats didn't have a rudder like we do now. Large boats, they did, but the, the fishing boats didn't. The fishing boats had a large, specialized steering oar. This oar was held by an oarsman who sat towards the back of the boat. But because most men were right-handed, this steering board was on the right side of the boat. So over time, the term was shortened from starboard, combining the Old English word store, which means steer, and board, which means the other side of the boat. So. The, 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 the term is referring to these steering boards that were over here because the guys were right-handed. They, they had to kind of uh, manipulate them that way. The port side of the vessel is named so because that's the side that you laid up against the port. So these hapless disciples are having a, a rough morning. They were out all night. They had caught nothing. But Jesus is saying, cast the net onto the right side. That, that was unheard of to them. You, you don't do it that way. I don't know about you, I know sometimes in churches they'll come up with a neat idea and they'll say, nah, we don't do it that way. We've never done it that way before. I know you guys are never doing any of that, but, but some folks <laughs> in other churches and other places have probably said that before. Uh, we've never done it that way before. And that's what the disciples were thinking, with good reason. Okay, you didn't throw the net onto the right side of the boat, because why? You had the steering mechanism out there. It would mess up the net, or the steering mechanism would get caught in the net. It just wasn't done. It was never been done that way. And so the disciples are looking at Jesus like, you don't know what you're doing. Okay, we're fishermen. You're not. With all due respect, you're Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the Son of God. You're not a fisherman. We are. Trust us. And Jesus says, throw it out onto the right side. It was just never done. And yet that's what Jesus was telling them. Such a suggestion would be nothing sort of, short of scandalous. But they followed Jesus after a while, maybe reluctantly so. After all, the disciples were thinking, hey, you know, we're the experts, we're professional anglers, we know what we're doing, we got this, we can handle this. Thank you, though, Jesus. 
But you see, this is considered one of the miracles of Jesus, but it's not a story about fish. It's a story about obedience, a story of about faithfulness. It's a story about trust. And I can't speak for you. Maybe it's a, a Joe thing. That at times I'm kind of like that hapless, helpless, hopeless fisherman. I'm kind of doing my own thing. I think I know what's best. I've got my plan. I've got my desires. I've got my agenda. But then along comes Jesus who challenges me to do something that goes against my comfort zone. Something that I never thought I'd do. Something that I never wanted to do. But Jesus has a way of shaking things up, doesn't he? In your life, have you seen that? If you haven't, maybe you will. Jesus shakes things up. At the time, his instructions to the fishermen didn't make any sense at all. To the disciples in the fishing boat, they're thinking, man, we, we, we can't throw our nets over there. They're going to get tangled. We've always been told all of our lives, go on the left side, don't go out onto the right side. But Jesus was calling them to do something that they never thought they had to do. He was giving them a totally different way of looking at things. And so we'll look back at that in a matter of mere moments, okay? So, with that said, you guys deserve a little break. So we're going to do a little bit of table time. If you need to head to the restroom, feel free to do that. And I'm going to give you two really short videos to watch. And again, you do your spokesman. I'll give you ten minutes. Do your, your magic. And you guys do a great job. I was telling my wife about that earlier. I said, man, these guys ought to write my sermons uh, because they are good. Okay, so I'm not just simply saying that, okay? It's true. So I always look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. So with that said, let's check out video number one. Finally tonight, there are a few things as satisfying as watching good triumph over evil. So watch it happen. Here's you guys hear okay? On the road. Good. 78-year-old Tana Herndon of Bethany, Oklahoma, was vulnerable in every way. Her husband of 60 years had died just two weeks earlier. Her eyes so clouded with grief, she never saw it come. You know, I really didn't know anything was going wrong until I was halfway in the car. An elderly woman's business around me trying mugged. The mugger got away with her purse and $700, but not for long. Police caught him, and the news put his mugshot on TV. So first thing you see that picture, you recognize who that guy is? Yeah, in detail. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. How's your dad? 15-year-old Christian Lunsford says his parents divorced when he was two, and his dad has been mostly absent ever since. Last time he heard from him was a few weeks ago. His dad gave him $250 for a band trip Christian really wants to go on. But that's been the extent of his parenting recently. In fact, over the years, Christian says his dad has been in and out of jail more than half a dozen times. There's times like that you just feel really low, like, is that going to be me? Am I going to end up like that? This apple wants nothing to do with the tree. Which is why, after Christian heard about his dad's latest crime, he reached out to the victim and asked to meet her in this church parking lot. You think, what's going on here? He says he just had to tell her. Sorry about what happened. It needed to be done. She needed an apology from somebody. If I didn't apologize, who would? I thought that was so, so precious. Any 15-year-old boy who has that much conscience is extraordinary. And Christian was just getting started. He gave me $250 for my band trip then, but I'm not sure if it was yours or who, however he got it, but I just, 
I'd feel bad if I wouldn't, didn't give it to you. Never mind that it wasn't his crime. He paid the debt. I accept this. I accepted the money back. And it was mine to do with what I wanted. Which brings us to the best part of this story. She gave it all back to him. You sure? For his band trip. It was a joy to do that. Thank you. In the end, no money changed hands in that church parking lot. But they each got something tremendously valuable from the other. I feel more like my life still has a purpose. You know, not who your parents are. I mean, but even if they do raise you, you can become whoever you want to be. No victims here. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Oklahoma City. Okay, that's story number one, if you want to use that. What's a modern-day parable? Okay, next up, let's see what we got here. Finally tonight, there are a few things as satisfying as watching good and triumph over We just did that, didn't we? So what? <laughs> a few weeks ago, Steve Hartman introduced us to a young boy who found a $20 bill, converted it to a currency called kindness, and invested it with a stranger. Well, that investment has had quite a return. Here's Steve on the road. Nine-year-old Miles Eckert may be America's most reluctant celebrity. It was never his intention to be honored at civic events or posed for pictures. But for the last month, this has been his world. Thank you so much. Things are not so normal right now. We're on the right of our lives. Tiffany is Miles' mom. I mean, I've seen stuff go viral, but usually it's like a picture of a cat, not my son. It's the craziest thing I've ever experienced in my life. If you missed the story that started it all, Miles' adventure began here, at a Cracker Barrel in Maumee, Ohio. As the security camera shows, Miles and his family entered the restaurant on February 7th at 11.14. Miles was very excited. He just found a $20 bill in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Just sitting there? Yeah. Did you start thinking of what you could spend it on? Uh, I kind of wanted to get a video game, but then I decided not to. He changed his mind when he saw a guy in a military uniform enter the restaurant. Because he was a soldier, and soldiers remind me of my dad. And so, with his dad in mind, Miles wrapped the 20 in a note that read, Dear Soldier, my dad was a soldier. He's in heaven now. I found this $20 in the parking lot when we got here. We like to pay it forward in my family. It's your lucky day. Thank you for your service. Signed, Miles Eckert, a Gold Star Kid. <laughs> Army Sergeant Andy Eckert was killed in Iraq just five weeks after Miles was born. All the kid has ever had are pictures and dog tags. This is his wedding Other people's memories and his own imagination. I imagined him as a really nice person and something that would be really fun. <laughs> the dad he imagines must also love a good story. Yeah. Because after lunch that day, Miles asked his mom to make one more stop. Excellent. He wanted to go see his dad. And he wanted to go by himself that day. She took this picture from the car. Follow the footsteps and you'll see Miles standing there behind the flag. Presumably telling his dad all about it. And whether heaven heard him or not, his good deed has made a huge impression here on earth. He read it more than once. I look at it every day. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Daly of the Air National Guard is the one who got the note. He gave you a bigger gift than $20. Yeah. 
uh, a lifetime uh, uh, direction, for sure. Lieutenant Colonel Daly paid it forward by giving away the money, and that 20 has been multiplying ever since. It's exponential. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. After our story aired, a lot of people wanted to give Miles his $20 back. Right. But instead of taking any money, right. the Ackerts directed those donations to Snowball Express, a charity that helps kids who've lost a parent to war. So far, donations total more than a quarter of a million dollars. Somebody would be very <laughs> proud. Steve Hartman, on the road. Boy, that didn't get you tears flowing. Something's wrong, man. I showed that in, in Chapel Roswell, and man, people were just bawling like crazy. You hear all the sniffles. So, those are your two stories. You got the the, the I guess fifteen year old in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who who paid for his dad's sin and his dad's crime, and there you've got the the little boy in suburban Toledo, Ohio, who um, gave twenty dollars to somebody else, and it, it just uh, just did some amazing things. So with that said, you got 10 minutes, come up with whatever story you want to use. Tell us the modern day parable that you want to do, okay? Go ahead. Yeah. All right. That means I'm going to borrow, Jeff, I'm going to borrow your mic if that's okay. Just turn it off. You're right there. You're all set. You got it. Okay. Which one of those videos did you like the most, just out of curiosity? The second, yeah, second one is a tear um, Later tonight, we're going to do a simple activity. We've got two more that are very similar. And, and my philosophy on that is that, you know, if they're two and a half minutes each, if you don't like them, then it takes like 4% of our time together. So it's not the end of the world, okay? Um, but the, we're actually going to do this corporately. We're going to do it together for the last two in just a little bit. So who would like to go first? Okay, we're going to head to the back table. By the way, tell me what this picture is of. That's taken outside about 30 minutes ago. So who, who's got it? Right over here. All right, tell us which video you chose and why, and then tell us what you did. Well, both of them. It's good to see anything. Amen. Okay, uh, good prime book. We never know how an act of kindness can impact others. Play it forward, act of kindness. And uh, there's something recently about the three acts of kindness daily. And uh, people you don't know or whoever. But uh, I thought it was tremendous. First was the courage of a 15 year old, an average teenager. And his background, having a father, who he was. He, he, unfortunately, the sins of the father did not pass to the son, which often yeah. happens. But, uh, his courage uh, to, to meet the woman, church parking lot. Yep. You thought that was that's very impressive. I like that. Whatever. And then, of course, the uh, the young boy. That was incredible too. I mean. Obviously, uh, having lost his father, lost his father, and heard about lost his father, and to, you know, to be uh, recognized for 20 hours, for another soldier, and, and then seeing that pass forward, forward, and forward, and forward, and forward. We never know the impact we can Absolutely right. Good job, guys. Well done. We'd like to go next. Let's go here first, just because I'm closer. All right, Mark, it's all yours. Uh, 
I'm not saying that we uh, chose good against evil. Uh, we said it would be a parable of the right choice. Uh, uh, good against selfishness. Both of the stories were excellent. But uh, I think, uh, I, I think we, would, we would choose it the parable of the right choice. Mm, very well said. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go over here. Hey, it's all yours. ended I couldn't talk I was in any event uh, I like the point that you made that like Jesus feeding the thousands with five fish and uh, um, the young man the young man that fed who knows how many with one point so many times, so he touched so many people, even though they never saw the twenty dollar bills, just seeing videos, hearing the stories that were put on TV, that were in the newspapers, that were big diamonds, and all those things. It's an amazing story. The young man who felt the obligation to go pay his debt that his father stole, yeah. uh, stood up for what he thought was right in his family. Young man had a, a father that the family's values, the, the culture that we live in, the people that we are around, the, the display that we make, being nice to people, watching what we say, language wise, just the, the kindness we share with each other. We love some boys that, uh, and anybody else. It's just part of our culture. Yeah, well said. Who'd like to go next? First uh, part of scripture that came to me was suffer the little children that come on to me. Those young boys had a special heart, whether it was because they were grieving for their father or, or whatever, but they had a special heart. And that's what young children had, and it's awfully hard for adults to have that type of, of heart. I, I remember that recent story where what was two hundred thousand dollars fell out of that uh, that truck, and only maybe two people. I'm not sure that gave the money back. I got two hundred dollars from it. Oh, you did! <laughs> I'm glad it makes you feel good. <laughs> from that point of view, is we need to take our feel like young children in our Christian life. We don't need to get anything in return. We want to just give whatever we can. Good stuff. Well said. You guys are awesome. Who wants to go next? There you got it. Well, we really struggle with this idea of paying for a sin or something that you had nothing to do with. If you had no responsibility for it, you were not guilty of it. And you think about that. That's what Jesus Christ did. Amen. He paid dearly for something that had nothing to do with it. So that was a really powerful tool for us. Great. I like that. And that's what I was thinking the exact same thing. He's, Jesus paid the price for something that wasn't his doing. You guys, okay, who's got it? 
Nobody wants it at this table. <laughs> All right, you got it. I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man of few words, and then that's all uh, we do. I was thinking, too, a little bit about um, the fact that that 15-year-old, I don't, don't know him at all, and let's say I, I was in a restaurant and he came in, and he's got these baggy clothes and this bleached hair and these big old earrings, and I might make a judgment about him. But you know what? He invited the lady to the church parking lot because that's his church. The earrings that he saw, they were crosses. Uh, and so right off the bat, we maybe misjudge some other people at times. But also it was interesting because both stories have to do with children blessing adults. And I think that's really cool too uh, because, like you said, let the children come to me and, and see if they do come to Christ, Christ is going to do great things uh, in them and with them and through them. So, oh, sorry about that, the wrong thing. Okay. Let me tell you about something. Actually, I need somebody to volunteer. Somebody who's going to volunteer. Somebody good with a mic. Somebody who feels comfortable talking into a mic. Jeff, I think it's you. Okay, here's what you're going to do. You can stay seated. You don't even need a mic. Yeah, you may not need a mic. Okay, in just a little bit, I'm going to start talking and ranting and raving and doing all sorts of crazy stuff like I tend to do. And when I point to you, I'm going to point to you, and you're going to read that. And I'm going to point to you a lot, okay? I would talk, point, talk, point, talk, point, Jeff, talk, Jeff, talk, me, point, Jeff, talk, good stuff. All right, there you go. You know what the charge okay, is. Okay, we're going to try. Okay. How many of you have heard of Vinko Bogotaj? Vinko Bogotaj, he is from the former Yugoslavia. His name uh, may not mean a lot to you, but a lot of you are probably familiar with him. his fault. He actually went back to his career in Yugoslavia. He drove a forklift. 
Oddly enough, what did he lift with the forklift? Anchors. So just an interesting point that ties in the anchors is what we're talking about. That's not why I used him, but I just thought it was kind of interesting as I researched him. He was lifting anchors. Now, many years later, he was invited to come to the United States as Jim McKay, the, uh, the sports announcer for the ABC Live World of Sports. And, and Vinka was surprised that people here even knew who he was. But there's something that he said that we needed to know about that catastrophic event back in 1970. It had started to snow. The ramp had become really, really slick. In fact, really dangerous. In fact, by today's standards, they would have called off the jump. They wouldn't have done it. But back then, they still did it. Vinko got about a third of the way down the ramp, and he realized that he was going way too fast, the conditions were way too hazardous. He was in big-time danger of flying off the end of the ramp and overshooting the landing area, which would have been fatal. So on the fly, going down the ramp, he decided, I've got to abort this jump. So I'm going to fall purposely, and it's going to keep me from dying. Yeah, it looked brutal when you saw it over and over, and I, like a, a sick man, played it in slow motion over and over. But the, the, the truth is that that, 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 that fall... Okay, surrendering the entire event, that saved his life. In reality, he chose a decision that, that most people wouldn't understand. Why would you purposely fall? But that's what he did. It goes against the grain, certainly, of how things usually are done. And so what looked like a nasty fall was really a deliberate act on his part to save his life. Okay, why do I mention that? Well, the disciples, when Jesus was telling them to, to throw the net where? On the right side. They were focusing on their own understanding. They were focusing on their own, own knowledge, their background, their upbringing, whatever you want to say. In the world's eyes, they had pretty stellar knowledge. They, they were pretty bright guys, honestly. Fishermen were very well regarded in that culture. But sometimes, as strange as it might sound, the, the call of God kind of defies maybe our own limited understanding. Sometimes the call doesn't make sense, at least not in the eyes of the world. Sometimes not even to us. But when we're faithful, when we're obedient to what God is calling us to do, and when we are faithful and obedient to respond to what God is calling to do, we can see just amazing things that we would never experience on our own. And that's what I think God is trying to, to, to get into our, our mindset that, that we need to be faithful and obedient and surrender to God so, so that we can see God just do something mighty and incredible. And the great thing about this church, the great thing about your class, is that there are so many awesome things already going on. That because, seriously, of your impact on our community, on our church, and on our world, heaven is going to be a lot more crowded. I truly believe that, in all seriousness. Because you guys are living out the faithfulness Cast and the your obedience net on to the Christ. right side of the Oh yeah, what pointing do you get? I was just getting inside. <laughs> so, but that's good practice. Okay? So, let's let's try that. Okay? I'm gonna rant and rave about something. I'm gonna point to you. Cast your net on the right side of the road. Bear with me for a couple of seconds here. For the disciples, okay? I feel like I'm on the, uh, remember on the TV show, the $25,000 Pyramid with Dick Clark, and when you would get into the winner's circle, remember when you had to describe something and your partner had to guess what you were talking about? What would they do with your hands when you sat there? Do you remember? 
you either have to sit on your hands or they actually strap them behind you or maybe in your lap because they didn't want you to use your hands. Um, I use my hands all the time. When I was on television, I did that all the time. As a pastor, I do that all the time. My wife will say, Joe, that just drives me nuts. It, it just, it's, it's just confusing. And so I try to be careful with that. That's one of the reasons my iPad, when I carry it, it just goes out and in because I'll, I'll accidentally rub it the wrong way or something and it, it breaks down. But I'll try not to use my hands unless I'm pointing to Jeff. Okay? Passenger net on the right side. <laughs> well done. Good stuff. So, the disciples. The disciples were, were fishing and nothing was going their way. Their nets were empty. Maybe at times our lives feel empty, but, but we follow Jesus to a better way. Passenger net on the right side of the boat. And Jesus says, you are going to be surprised at what happens. Uh, but, but God, uh, this is Joe McKechnie speaking, okay? I know my life better than anyone. After all, I live it. I know myself. I know those people around me. I don't know how things are going to turn out, and I am so scared, Jesus, to step out in faith. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, God, uh, Jesus, this is Joe again. In my life, I admit that so often things are dictated by a schedule or by a routine or things that are comfortable, my desires, my agendas, my, my habits. It's so difficult to follow your plans, which honestly don't seem to jive with my desires or my own way of doing things. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, sure, we want to be a church that reads, reads, uh, reaches people for Jesus. Okay, but, but God, you're calling us to do something that, that we've never done before. We, we've never done it that way before. Joe, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now he's ad-libbing. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> you just come up and preach for I can. That's awesome. Where was I? Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, uh, but, but God, I can't get past the resentment that I feel towards people in my life. I've been hurt uh, so many times, and things don't seem like they're ever going to change. Things are never going to get any better. This is my life, and this God is all I know. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, but God, at times my life, by golly, it is just so dictated by fear. I'm always worrying about something. All this anxiety is driving me crazy, and things are going to fall down all around me, and I'm going to be worried, and I'm going to be gripped by fear. And God, you're allowing these things to steal my joy. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Or maybe some of us were dictated by anger. Our, our flesh tells us, uh, that when somebody makes us angry, we have to respond with age, with rage rather, or hostility, or with bitterness, or with passive aggressiveness, or with the silent treatment, or with gossip. We can't imagine doing anything another way. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, God, I know what you're saying. I, I know that I'm called to serve you. All of us as believers are, but, but I don't have the time. I, I promise that when things slow down a bit, when I'm in another season of life, someday soon, I'll focus on my relationship with you. But right now, I've got my own issues. I'm kind of going in my own direction. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, God, I know that the Bible says that I'm called to forgive people, just, just as Jesus, you've forgiven me. Jesus, that, that person really bothers me and they really let me down. I just can't forgive that person. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. But God, I, I have so much shame in my life, so many mistakes, so many errors. 
so many problems and, and I just can't seem to get past that. I'm filled with so much shame and so much regret. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Well, friends, maybe there's a situation in your life that you just can't seem to, to work through. You, you've tried everything, or maybe almost everything, and, and things don't seem to change. And yet God is saying, I've got better plans for you. You just have to trust me. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Jesus and his instructions to the disciples didn't make any sense, honestly. But, but my goodness, it wasn't long until they realized what a blessing it was to actually listen to what Christ had to say, and even more awesome, to follow his command. It means releasing our own way of doing things. It means that we have to trust God in such a way that, that our trust in God is strong enough to back up his promises for our lives. That when we yield to God's will, when we give up control, which is so incredibly difficult to do, it's referred to as surrender. But for those who trust in the Lord, surrender is not about defeat. Rather, it's about embracing and living out something that brings us the ultimate victory. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. So you're going to dream about that tonight. You'll be in the, the middle of night and you'll just be dreaming of Jeff saying that in your sleep. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. I love it. Christ has a habit of calling us to do things that seem risky seem out of our comfort zone, seem maybe anxiety-inducing, but he's calling us to change. The good news, though, is that we are not called to change on our own, because truthfully, we wouldn't or we couldn't. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is calling us to change and giving us the strength to live that out. Cast your net on the right side of the boat times it doesn't make any worldly sense, but trust me, it does to Jesus. And I, I pray that each of us can be faithful and obedient to what it is that Jesus is calling us to do. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. How are you going to respond to that? Let's pray. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the peace and the hope that only you can provide. Lord, we thank you for second chances and third chances and millionth chances. Lord God, may we surrender every corner of our lives to you. And that, Lord, in this time of stillness and silence, we ask that your Holy Spirit continue to chisel away at all of those dark corners of our lives. May we follow your calling and have our lives line up with your will for us. Father, what does that look like in the lives of each of us? Yes, yeah, so your Holy Spirit, just reveal what it is that you want us to live out. Those blessings and those challenges that you want us to experience. Father God, I pray that we can follow your call even when it seems to defy all that we've ever known calling us to throw our net onto the right side of the boat it just doesn't seem to be logical at times. And yet we knew what happened when they did. May we be the same way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay.
two more things and we're going to be done. We're going to wrap up with, with two more table things, table times, but, but you're not going to have to work with your table. So if you're sick of the people sitting across from you, we're going to be just for you, okay? We're going to do something different. We're going to watch two of these things, again, really short videos, and then we're just going to kind of go around the room and we're going to try to process this stuff together as we kind of look back on some of the things we talked about today. Is that okay? We're, we're good? No moans or groans or complaints, death threats, anything at all? We're, we're good? Okay. Finally tonight, how can you mend a broken heart? Tough question. At least we know where it can happen. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. Not long ago, in a cemetery outside Augusta, Georgia, a loving couple was buried. The wife buried below this white bouquet. The husband buried above in a mound of grief. Took me totally by surprise. 82-year-old Dan Peterson says after Mary died, he fell into a deep depression. He spent days just staring out at the squirrels. What were you looking for? I was trying to figure that out, frankly. You had no purpose? No. Were you just waiting to die? No. For six months, it was just that bad. And then one day you go to a grocery store. It all changed inside this Publix. Dan was nearing the end of the canned vegetable aisle. He hates grocery shopping, and by all accounts, the expression on his face confirmed his aggravation. But that's when this unapproachable man was approached by a four-year-old girl named Nora Wood. In the security footage, you can see Nora randomly reaching out to him. Her mom, Tara, says it was quite embarrassing. She said, hi, old person, it's my birthday today. Old person? Old person. Hi, old person. She says this to this cranky old man. Yeah. And then had the audacity to demand a hug. I said, a hug? I said, absolutely. <laughs> Nora got her hug and then asked her mom to take a picture of her with her new friend. She zeroed in on him like a missile. And she didn't want anything from him. She just wanted to make him feel loved and give him a hug. And his little lip quivered and... He was teared up, and it was just sweet. And I said, you don't know. This is the first time for quite a while that I've been this happy. That all happened a couple months ago, and his grin has only gotten wider since. Hi, sweetheart. Come in. Come in. Today, Nora visits at least once a week. So how is my friend, huh? And every time. It's the grocery store all over again. I knew I'd have to get her. What was her Told them people. It's a bridge. It's a bridge. Oh, okay. Dan does have grandkids of his own, but they're all grown and gone. And Nora does have grandparents. But her mom says this is a completely different kind of bond that almost defies explanation. She fell asleep holding a picture of them. Ah. What? <laughs> To Dan, it's equally miraculous, but far less mysterious. He believes Nora is, quite literally, an angel. She opened me to a love that I didn't know existed. When your wife died, you felt like you didn't have any purpose anymore. Do you feel like you have a purpose now? Of course. Nora. Watching her grow up. 
I know I need room in my heart for a lot more. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Augusta, Georgia. I've seen that seriously probably 20 times, and I still get misty-eyed each time. The last one is not nearly that sentimental, um, but I think it is kind of interesting nonetheless. This is about a college football player. The only time I'm really going to talk about sports. You judge a book by its cover, or we might add, a football player by his jersey. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. In Athens, Georgia, in the bestseller section of this Barnes and Noble, Kathy Rackley found a novel story of her own. I mean, a chance encounter in a bookstore. How wonderful is that? Did you have any idea at all who he was? None. And you didn't tell him? I didn't. But I knew they were going to find out. Yeah. But I wasn't going to say it. Kathy may have been the only one in Athens who didn't know the name Malcolm Mitchell. Number 26 for the University of Georgia Bulldogs was one of the top recruits in the country a few years ago. He's Georgia royalty. And presumably, if Kathy had known that, she wouldn't have stood in that Barnes & Noble talking his ear off about the book club she'd just joined. I mean, he like stepped back and he said, you did? And he said, can I join your book club? And I said, I don't know if you want to join mine. We're all 40, 50, and 60-year-old women. But Malcolm was undeterred. So now, one of the top wide receivers in the country meets monthly with his book club lady friends. Oh, yeah. And then he went to the wedding. I love, I love that. <laughs> He's the only man and the youngest by a generation. But Malcolm doesn't care. Nor does he care what anyone thinks. Somebody called me a nerd. Not a word that I'm used to hearing. Is it okay, though? Are you okay with the label? I was proud of it. Right. It's like a badge of honor to me. Know where I came from. Malcolm confessed to me that when he started college, he could only read at about a junior high level, and it bothered him. So he started putting as much effort into his reading game as his football game. Every free moment, he had a book in his hand. He's now reading things he never dreamed he could. And although some of the book club selections, he would never pick himself. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to enjoy them. Yeah, then it was great. Look at your life now. All you've accomplished. What are you most proud of? I finished the Hunger Games series in about two days. Reading the Hunger Games. Yeah. Have you seen any of the footage? Have you scored touchdowns? <laughs> That's not your most proud moment. That came natural. That's a gift. I had to work to read. But his greatest talent may lie in his ability to step so outside his comfort zone, to be able to meet people and focus so sincerely on what they have in common instead of their trivial differences. Sometimes football makes great men. And sometimes great men just happen to play football. <laughs> Steve Hartman. On the road in Athens, Georgia. Yeah. Let me give you just a little bit of a, a follow-up. Malcolm Mitchell, he graduated several years ago from Georgia. He was drafted by the New England Patriots. He had a huge game. His best game was in the Super Bowl against Atlanta when New England came back and, and beat the Falcons. That was his biggest game. He actually uh, signed a, a multi-million dollar contract, but he injured himself, and so he had to sort of retire from the NFL. And guess what he's done since then? 
he's written two books, including a children's book. And so that's what he's doing now. He says it's the greatest thing he's ever done to see children lighting up because of something that he's written. So that's kind of cool with that said. Jeff, you got our mic, don't you? Somebody share some of your thoughts. Video number one, the man in public. Video number two, the college football player. What do we take from those? What are some things that, that you say, wow, that might be a good parable? Where do we go with this? I need to know because I've got to write a sermon about this. So I need your help really quickly. Anybody? Yes, sir. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. What was it about Malcolm Mitchell? The, the, the reporter, Steve Hartman, even mentioned that. What did he do? Stepped out of his comfort zone. Did you hear him say that? You've heard that before tonight, haven't you? I love the fact that the mom let the little girl speak to the old man yeah. mm -hmm. and hug the old man. Yeah. Because yeah. so much of our society today says you can't trust anybody else. That's a good point, yeah. I love it, the mom had a, a great deal of faith, and now bringing them over, bringing her daughter over to this to this strange guy's house all the time. That that's pretty incredible. That's leaving your comfort zone. Certainly, that that obviously is going against the grain of our culture because of where we are. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. On the first one, even though this man was, they showed a span of time, and he was aging. If you look at it. At the end of it, and the first of it, he looked much younger. Mm. That's a very good point. You can see his cadence just totally changed from the very beginning to the very end. What did Jesus say? Let the children what? Come unto me. That's exactly right. That's what we can take from this. Who else wants to go? Anybody? You tired? You sleepy? You ready to go outside? You need a nap? What, what's going on here? All right, Martha, cheers. Bring us home. Well, I thought it was good because, you know, he had that crown. He didn't want to talk. He didn't want to live because he didn't have anything to yeah. live for. And then, like she said at the end, he's smiling and he's showing the little girl that she's pleasing him. Mm. And she probably feels like she's accomplished in something she really is. And I thought that was wonderful. Oh, wow. And, and Mark, you said something that, that not only is that deep, you said something that, that makes my mind think of something else. You said that 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 he was pleased with her. Is that the right verbiage? He immediately picked up on that. Say that again? He immediately picked up on that. That, that he was pleased with yeah. her. Yeah. One of the things in Scripture that it says when it's talking about God's righteousness and how Jesus gives us that righteousness, that in Scripture it says that God delights in us. And another translation of that says... God is pleased with me now, despite my sin, despite the fact that I've screwed up, I've been in rebellion, I've wandered away. Despite that, the scripture says, God is pleased with me. Wow, God delights in me, it says. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Joe, one of the things that she did here was um, that child gave him a purpose to live. Mm. He did not have a purpose. So that child gave him a purpose. That child gave him a purpose. Think about the, the birth narrative of Jesus, the, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Unto us a child is born. What does he do? He brings sozo, which means salvation. And what else? Sozo, the Greek word. Salvation and healing. healing. 
Remember those two, the same Greek words for salvation and healing. That Jesus came into this world to bring about salvation and to bring about healing. What else? Any other thoughts? Well, the book club lady didn't even say, well, let me go check with my book club. She just said she invited into her book club. That's true. That's true. She kind of so, yeah. stepped out on a great deal of faith. What are these? What are my, my women friends going to think about this 19-year-old college guy coming into our book club, the only man, uh, the only one who wasn't a white ethnicity with them. I mean, 30 years younger than, than some of the women. I mean, totally outside of all of their comfort zones, and yet she extends the invitation. God is extending an invitation to each and every one of us. And we, he gives us the, the freedom to say yes, or to say no, or to say not yet, I'm going to do my own stuff. But, but God extends the invitation, and it's up to us how we're going to respond. And Malcolm Mitchell said, this seems kind of freaky, but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. Oh, I read books like an addict, and I really love books. I cannot imagine the courage it took for Michael to join ladies of the book club. They were twice his age, but he was so behind in reading at his level. Yeah, obviously, yeah. very courageous man to play all that he did. But this was totally out of his comfort zone. But he seemed very comfortable in that zone once again. Yeah, and that's a really good point because um, the world is going to look at him and say, What? You don't belong here. You don't belong here. Okay? You're now a pro football player making millions and millions of dollars a year. Your success is going to be based on the fact that we tell you you're successful because you can run and catch a football. Okay, you're wealthy, you have good status now because of what you can do on a football field. But he's saying, I'm not interested in that identity. My identity is over here. It may not be what the world wants or what the world thinks or what the world progresses or, or, or processes, whatever the right word is, onto me. Uh, but, but I'm going to live my life doing what I feel like is the right thing to do. And that's what we're called again, to, to go against the grain of our culture. He actually, because he, he did develop this passion for reading, he wanted to go to Auburn, and um, he decided not to because they have only two books, and both of them have been colored already. About any of what we've talked about tonight. Anyone a hand? Anybody, anybody got with their hands going up? Bring some dignity to us. You have to really give the, the whole group of ladies credit because they all accepted. They did, absolutely. Every day they all accepted it. They really did. And that's a good point to notice too. Because remember we talked about the word koinonia? That means fellowship. If you look at the early church, one of the reasons, again, the church just, just grew by leaps and bounds. People were, were coming to them like moth to a flame or, or metal to a magnet. They were just attracted to the Christians because, number one, that they gave women a sense of empowerment that the culture didn't. Number two, uh, in, in, in most of the walled cities you had back then, a, a big, huge stone wall was around the city for fortification, for protection. But then if you go inside those walls, you see even more walls. That, that, that uh, kind of divided the town based on one's ethnicity or based on one's socioeconomic condition. 
So you had the Jewish people over there, the Gentile people over there, the Africans over there, the Europeans over there, the people from Asian descent over there, the wealthy over there, the poor over there, the free over there, the slaves over here. And yet what was going on with, with, with these women of different ages, different stages of life, uh, welcoming this man into their midst, into their club, that's, that's pretty radical stuff. And that's what the early church did. They broke down those barriers. So people would see that and say, wow, they're, they're just totally just, just revamping our priorities and what the world says we should do and shouldn't do. And that's pretty powerful, too. So any other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. This is kind of crazy, but I think that that lady, Kathy Radley, was mm-hmm. a member of our church. Really? Yeah. Brady and Kathy Radley. Did anybody remember them? Brady and Kathy Radley. Her name was, the lady that was in that yeah, video, that's her name. was a member of our church. How do you spell it? R-A-C-K-L-E-Y. Wow. Do some research. That's pretty cool to think about. Wow. So she lives in Athens now as part of a book club. So with that said, any other closing thoughts? If not, we're going to wind down for the night. And then, Tom, you're going to tell us about we're going outside. Is that right? We're going on like a field trip tonight.